good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. This morning we'll conclude our primer, our thinking through and preparing for the book of Exodus, and there's no better place to do that than looking at the story of Joseph. Uh, Probably one of the first stories that captivated my attention as a young child was the story of Joseph. It was always a unique one. It was always a thrill to read through. And yet, nonetheless, for the vast majority of my life, as I read through the story of Joseph, I read through it very much like a Pharisee. It's an interesting narrative. It's a fun story. It communicates some things concerning the collection or the the multiplication of the people of God. But I rarely read, at least up until the point of my early 20s, rarely did I read the Old Testament in light of the New. It's a great error to not read the Old Testament in light of the New. As a matter of fact, it's not only a great error, error, it's a great way for us to rob ourselves of the joys and the thrills that we find revealed in the Old Testament. We must never unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. We must always apply the light of the new in our interpretations. And so when we come to this text, what I'd like to do is really give somewhat of a primer for the way that we'll be studying the book of Exodus. And I'd like to apply that primer to the story of Joseph. When we come to the pages of the Old Testament, we do not read them uh, like the Pharisees. We read them with the aim to imitate the hermeneutics, that is to say, the way that the uh, apostles and the way that the Lord Jesus Christ studied and understand the Scriptures. So what I'd like to do this morning is I'll read a brief passage from the story of Joseph, and then what I'd like to do is give a primer on how we should interpret this, and then what I'd like to do is walk through two ways that the narrative of Joseph impacts our understanding of the promised offspring. With that, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Genesis chapter 50, starting in verse 22, and we'll make our way till the end of the book. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Genesis chapter 50, starting in verse 22, says this, So Joseph remained in Egypt, he in his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of of Mecher, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Let's pray together. Father, it is interesting, even at the conclusion of Genesis, to see the way that Joseph hung on to the promises that were given to Abraham. Lord, that he knew that his people, that he knew that his brothers would be sojourners and slaves in a land. He knew that he stood on the very ground where they would be slaves. And Lord, even in that, he looked forward to the promised redemption. He looked forward to the Messiah coming, not just a deliverer like Moses, but instead, Lord, looking past him to the true and better prophet. Lord, that Joseph had spent his life knowing that he was an image, as it were, looking forward not to Joseph, the one who will provide bread, but looking forward to the true and better Joseph, the promised Messiah who would be the very bread of heaven. 
And Father, I ask as we look at this narrative, would you help us to see it with unveiled faces? May we rest in the finished work of Christ. May we look forward to the better deliverer. May we see his humiliation and his exaltation. And Lord, may we worship in the light of it. It's in the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So like I said, what I want to do first is I I really do want to lay out essentially an introduction to Old Testament study, preaching, and teaching. Uh, There is somewhat of a normative disposition as we come to the Old Testament to read it somewhat disconnected from the new. Uh, and, and, And what I mean by that is to say that we want to understand the immediate context as we're looking into the to the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, it matters not where you are. We want to understand exactly what's being communicated to the people in that particular era. But we also want to understand that we're not reading a wooden book. We're reading a book written by the living God. And as we're doing so, we understand that there is much being communicated, not just in the immediate context, but also in the full light of redemption. And so as we come to the Old Testament, I just want to give you two major things and build them out briefly. First, Old Testament study, preaching, and teaching must be anchored in a grammatical historical understanding of a text. That is to say that as we come to the scriptures, we are not yanking it out of its context so as to make it fit a particular paradigm that we want it to fit. That's not what we're doing. We're not taking the scripture and the desire with the desire to abuse it. That is to pull it out of its immediate context and thrust it into the new. That's not at all what we're doing. I think that would do a great discredit to the wisdom and the infinite knowledge of the spirit. We are not yanking something out of context to make it fit into the New Testament. We are making an assumption that the Holy Spirit of God has illuminated and placed Christ in that particular text. And it is our responsibility as we come to the pages of sacred scripture to labor in that text until we see it in its full light. And so we come to the text wanting to understand it in light of its historical and cultural context. We come to the pages of the Old Testament wanting to understand why particular words are used and and why it is they are used out throughout particular narratives. We'll see that in particularly in the story of Joseph. We come to the Old Testament longing to see theological statements and understandings. We want to be matured. We want to understand what's being revealed in those particular passages. A great illustration of this is in Genesis 22, the story of Abraham and Isaac laid out quite clearly there is the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement, essentially an indication that there would be one who would come, who would pay our sin debt, who would be our substitute. The scriptures clearly communicate those things. But we must never read the Old Testament with only those things in mind. We must understand that the grammatical historical hermeneutic, the way that we study the scriptures, looking at the grammar, looking at the culture, looking at the context, all of these are vitally important to our understanding of a particular passage. But hear me, saints, it is an incomplete hermeneutic. There is more to be offered. There is more to be gleaned because we stand not in the mysteries of the Old Testament, but we stand having the mystery already been revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. And so when we look back, we do not look back with the veil covering our eyes. Instead, we look back understanding that all the promises of God have found their yes and amen in Christ. We understand that every dot and tittle of the Old Testament is meant to point us ahead to the promised Messiah. And so I want to give you just a few New Testament concepts that we must bear with us as we make our way through our study in Genesis or Exodus or anywhere in the pages of the Old Testament. The Old Testament, Old Testament study, preaching, and teaching must employ a distinctly Christian hermeneutic. That is to say that if you can take your understanding of a particular text into a Jewish synagogue and exclusively get yes and amens, then perhaps it is that you have not reached the logical conclusion of that text. 
Because the logical conclusion of the text must end in Christ in some form or fashion. That is not to say that every single text points to his death, burial, and resurrection. There are ample texts that point to his kingship, to his prophetic ministry, to various aspects of his ministry, but it's meant to point us ahead to the promised Messiah. So what must we understand in light of the New Testament as we read the Old? First, we come to the Old Testament assuming, assuming that it was written for our instruction. Romans chapter 15, verse four says this, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. We come to the pages of the Old Testament understanding that it's written for the encouragement of the new covenant Christian. Secondly, we come to the Old Testament assuming that God intended to reveal the truths of Christ in the Old Testament. Romans chapter 16, verse 25 through 27, shout this to us. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writing has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to point out two major things from that text in Romans 16. First, you'll notice that these things were hidden in mystery. They were hidden in mystery, particularly in the prophetic writings. That is to say that they were hidden in a mysterious way in the writings of the Old Testament. Interestingly enough, we understand that they have also been disclosed through the prophetic writings that have been given to us. That is to say that they are both concealed and in light of the New Testament, in light of the finished work of Christ, we go back to them to show the revelation of Jesus Christ. Further, it assumes the spirit of Christ indicated, indicated Christ's person and work in the prophets. That is to say that we take 1 Peter 1, 10 through 11 at its word. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Interestingly enough, 1 Peter gives us the mental context of the writers of the Old Testament. They are not simply pinning prophecies and leaving them and going about their merry way. They are writing down the prophecies that were given to them by the Spirit of God, and they themselves understand that there is a suffering revealed in it and subsequent glories revealed in it. And they spend their lives longing to know the person that this was written about. That is to say that they saw him and they said, I want to know him. I want to know his name. I want to understand his sufferings and the sufferings subsequent glories, not in part, but in whole. So one could say that an appropriate understanding of the grammatical historical context would launch you into looking at the promised Messiah. Further, it embraces the reality that all the promises find their crescendo in Christ. 2 Corinthians 1, 20 through 21 says this, for all the promises of God find their yes and amen in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. We do not take verse 20 as an off-the-cuff statement by the apostle. Instead, we understand by the illumination of the Holy Spirit that what he is uttering there is a reality, that all of the promises of God, all of them, find their end, find their crescendo, 
or to borrow from the scriptures, find their yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning that if we're dealing with particular promises and it does not land us in saying Christ is the yes and amen, then we have not gone far enough. It aims to mimic the apostles' hermeneutic. Acts 2, 29 through 32, the most interesting thing that takes place at Pentecost, I am convinced, is that the veil is lifted in a unique fashion. Peter is no longer looking at particular text and saying, I wonder who that's about. Instead, he spends the entirety of his sermon expositing Old Testament passages, arguing for the lordship of Jesus Christ. Acts 2, 29 through 32 says this, Brother, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw, speaking of David, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we all are witnesses." Peter, in his proclamation of the lordship of Jesus Christ, hear me, he does not appeal to New Testament writings. He appeals to the pages of the Old Testament. He appeals to the authority of David being a prophet. He appeals to passages like Psalm 16, Psalm 110, and the list goes on. David's understanding of the Old Testament, David's understanding of that which he was writing in the moment was this isn't about me. This is about one that will come that somehow, and I'm sure David stood aghast at this reality, will be like me but better. Finally, and most importantly, it aims to mimic Jesus's assumptions and his hermeneutics. That is to say that it aims to mimic what Jesus believed about the Old Testament. Luke 24, 25 through 27 says this, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And I do not want you to believe that I am taking liberty with this passage saying that, ah, well, this must then apply to, to all of scripture. I am convinced that even in the articulation of the sentence, it is constantly reminding us that it is not pieces and parts, but the whole. Listen to the language that is mentioned here by Luke. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that is to say, the Old Testament Torah and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That is to say that Jesus takes all of the scriptures, lays them open and bare. And I'm not saying that in this particular moment, Jesus does a full exposition of all of the Old Testament. I'm instead saying that Jesus illuminates the minds and the hearts of his people to see him clearly in the pages of the Old Testament. It is the vast distinction between a, a pharisaical hermeneutic and a Christian hermeneutic. A Christian hermeneutic cannot stop until it lands at the Lord Jesus Christ. In short, Old Testament study, teaching, and preaching must be carried by a precise and appropriate understanding of the text at hand, all the while being illuminated by the full light of the New Testament. The Bible is not, first and foremost, a historical account. The Bible is, first and foremost, the written Word of God that endlessly points us to the living Word, Jesus Christ. We must not invert these. Is the Bible, does it convey historical realities? Without question. 
However, the primary purpose of the pages of scripture is not to give you particular historical accounts. The primary purpose of every page of scripture is to point you to Christ Jesus, that you may believe in him and have life in life eternally. That being the case, what I'd like to do is to take that basic presupposition and I'd like to apply it immediately to the book of Genesis, in particularly the story of Joseph. So the two ways I'd like to do this is first, I want to lay out the fact that the promised offspring is typified. That means to say that he is shadowed in the narrative of Joseph. There is something rather unique about the narrative of Joseph. The narrative of Joseph is unique because in pretty much every context and in every individual that we find inside of the scriptures, there's this clear indication of their unique sin. There are really only two individuals that we find in the Old Testament that they are not instantly impugned for the fact that they are sinners. Those two characters are Joseph and Daniel. And these two men uniquely do not have a moment in their narrative where they are tarred and feathered. You can find immediately passages like dealing with David, for instance. David, we are with absolute confidence understanding that he is not a sinless man. And hear me, saints, we understand that neither Joseph or Daniel were sinless. However, we do understand that there is a reason that the Spirit of God did not immediately point out their sin in the narratives that he inspired. So first, the promised offspring is typified, that is, made clear. It is demonstration of what he will be like in the narrative of Joseph. And then secondarily, we see that God used Joseph to preserve the promised line, that is to say, the promised seed who would come through Judah. That being the case, let's begin our journey walking through the narrative of Joseph. One of the things you will notice about this narrative is it is essentially a story of humiliation and exaltation. This is a very clear pattern that we find not only in the story of Joseph, but we really see it throughout um, the Old Testament scriptures. A, a great place that we can see this built out for us is in the book of Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, we see the language of the suffering servant that would one day be exalted. But much like penal substitutionary atonement is not introduced in the New Testament, it is introduced in the book of Genesis. In the very same way, the concept, that is to say, the, the picture of the suffering servant is not first and foremost introduced in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, it is clarified. It is introduced in the narrative of Joseph, one who would be humiliated in all forms. And then finally, one, and because of his faithfulness toward God would be exalted. So let's look at the story of Joseph. Joseph's narrative begins in chapter, 20, uh, chapter 37 of the book of Genesis. And a couple of things you will notice. Joseph is set forth as the faithful, spirit-filled, beloved son of Israel. You can gather these from the first couple of words. The faithfulness is essentially built out throughout the entirety of the narrative. Pharaoh himself eventually will look at Joseph and say, there is none like him so filled with the spirit of the living God. The recognition of the character and person of Joseph is scattered throughout these 13 chapters, but they are communicating loudly the unique character of Joseph and particularly in stark contrast to his brothers, the rest of the sons of Israel. So Joseph is set forth as the faithful, spirit-filled, beloved son of Israel. That is to say that he is the son of his old age, unique in some sense. And then Joseph not only was a faithful, spirit-filled, beloved son of Israel, he was also faithful in his witness. 
If you notice in the first couple of verses, Genesis 37, 2, for instance, says this, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their fathers. That is to say that Joseph essentially brought a bad yet true report of his other brothers back to his father. Joseph brings a report of his brother's faithlessness, and in doing so, he demonstrates himself to be a true and faithful witness. He comes bearing true statements concerning the rest of the people of Israel. Secondly, Joseph has and communicates two dreams, visions from the Lord. If you look at Genesis chapter 37, I'm going to do a pretty decent amount of reading this morning, but I'd like to point out to you some some key notes from this, and I want to emphasize a couple of words. Notice what it says in verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to him, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Notice that language, that simple word that carries through the entirety of the Joseph narrative, bowed. (laughs) Going a bit further, a little bit later, he has another dream. And it says this in verse 9. Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now that's a key note. Essentially the proclamation, the visions that Joseph has had are essentially anchored in the very mind of Israel. That is to say, Jacob. He is not letting go of these things in the very same way that Mary treasured up all of these things in her heart at the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jacob, Israel, is meditating upon the fact that it is foretold that all of Israel is to say will bow down to Joseph. Now, it is interesting that in various points of study, I have found a number of people that would like to impugn Jacob, or forgive me, that would like to impugn Joseph for sinning in his proclamation of the visions that God has given. I do not understand how anyone can read this narrative and believe that Joseph is in sin to tell his brothers and his father what God had showed him. In no world, neither today or in the day of Joseph, is it a sin to bear witness to truth. In this particular reality, Joseph looks at his brothers and conveys the very thing that God has given him to convey. He has been given a dream, he has been given a proclamation, and as one who has been given the ability by the grace of God to understand and to interpret these dreams, he tells them, which is the only appropriate response to someone who, uh, in someone who God has given that particular gift. Now, what then is the response to these things? Understanding that these things are not from Joseph, but first and foremost are from God. How is it that the sons of Israel react as proclamation is given to a future reality? The sons of Israel hate him. Hate him all the more, as the text goes on to say, and they, in the midst of their hatred of him, cannot speak a kind word to him. Not only can they not speak a kind word to him, they decide as they see Joseph making their way to them in the wilderness, let's kill him. Seems like a bit of an overreaction. Instead, they opt to sell him into slavery. Listen to the the words of Genesis 37, 4, and a couple of other verses as well. When the brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Genesis 37, 18 through 20, this is after the dreams, after they were interpreted and given to Israel. They saw him from afar. 
And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. That is to say that the people of Israel, the people from Jacob say, if we kill him, his dreams will not come to fruition and we will prove not only that Joseph is a liar, but that God was an error. Genesis 37, 26 through 28, one of the brothers comes to a pseudo rescue, if you can call it that. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Literally, by the way, considering the word profit here, he's not thinking about like future blessings. He's saying we won't make any money off his death. That's the type of wretchedness that's taking place in the heart of Judah. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Can you follow the humiliation in just these few introductory sections? that Joseph starts being the beloved of his father. He starts being the faithful witness. He continues his very essence, being faithful, honoring the Lord. And yet in the midst of all of these things, you see a unique descent. He makes his way out into the wilderness. He's cast down into the pit. He's sold into slavery, all because his brothers hate, not just him, but the very visions that God has given to him. Now, as we progress a bit further, not only is he sold into slavery, but he is sold into a particular house. Joseph is faithful and blameless in that house, that house being the house of Potiphar. Not only is he faithful and blameless, God prospers Joseph in the midst of his exile. And I do want you to notice, even though I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, Joseph considers the land in which he is dwelling the land of his sojourning. He considers it the land of his exile. We know that particularly by the way that he names his children. From this point all the way to his very death, he considers Egypt the land of his sojourning. And so he enters this land of sojourning and God prospers Joseph in the house of Potiphar. Genesis 39, 4. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of, of, of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. That is to say, that because of the excellent spirit that was within Joseph that, that Potiphar saw, that the prison guard saw, and ultimately that Pharaoh himself would see, God placed him in a position of authority. Potiphar, recognizing this, placed him over his house and all that he had. That is to say that God prospered Joseph even in the midst of his exile. Further, God blessed uh, Potiphar himself because of Joseph. Genesis 39, 5, from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. That is to say that he blessed, he blessed Potiphar for the sake of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So Potiphar is essentially reaping the blessings because of Joseph's interaction in his house, continued faithfulness, even in the midst of slavery. And we must not miss the fact that even though Joseph is in this particular house of Potiphar, even though he's been placed at a high position in his suffering, he is still in slavery. In the midst of that time in Potiphar's house, Joseph was tempted and tried in a rather unique way. Genesis 39, 7. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. That is to say the Proverbs 7 woman has always existed. And in the midst of this, 
Joseph, in the midst of the temptation, even very clearly stating that no one, no one was in the house except for Joseph and Potiphar's wife, Joseph reveals himself to be blameless. Listen to what he says in Genesis 39, 8 through 10. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of my master, because because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? You notice that his primary concern here is not first and foremost rebellion against Potiphar who's placed him in a position of authority. His primary concern is not sinning against his own flesh as 1 Corinthians 6 would lay out to us. His primary concern is that he will not rebel against his great God and King who he has submitted himself to because Joseph is demonstrating a great deal of fidelity not to those around him, but to his God. He is laying out essentially a case of blamelessness even in the midst of being uniquely tempted and tried. Joseph proves to be the blameless servant of God, not the blameless servant of Potiphar, though he be that, the blameless servant of his God. Now naturally, or perhaps better yet, unfortunately, this does not lead immediately to his exaltation. His fidelity does not instantly result in him being exalted to the position that he would find himself in a bit later in the narrative. Instead, Joseph was falsely accused and arrested. Genesis 39, 16 through 18, listen to the language that this woman lays out to accuse Joseph. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought, brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. That he is, she is falsely accusing Joseph for committing the very sin that she herself was trying to commit. Joseph continuing to be found faithful is then accused and not only accused, but Potiphar buys the lie of his wife. And in Genesis 39, 20, it says this, and Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoner prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. I want you to notice the correlation here. The correlation here is rather simple. Joseph is proving to be faithful and Joseph is continuing to be humiliated. That in the midst of his fidelity to bearing witness to what God had given him, he sold into slavery by his brothers. In the midst of his faithfulness, not going into sin, but instead being blameless before the Lord, he is then, he is then placed into prison and he will remain there for an extended period of time. Joseph has proven to be faithful and he is still continuing to descend. That is to say, he is still continuing to be humiliated. This is the introduction of the concept of the suffering servant. Finally, not finally, Joseph was taken to prison, prospered, and continued his faithfulness toward God. In the midst of his imprisonment, God continues to demonstrate great fidelity to Joseph. Genesis 39, 21 through 23 says this, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Joseph enters into this prisoner's camp, for lack of better terms. And not only does he enter in, he essentially takes over the very camp, not choosing, by the way, to walk out of that imprisonment, but waiting for the moment that he would be justified 
Further, Joseph then is introduced to two particular people, that is, a bread maker and a cupbearer, and Joseph interprets the dreams of the cupbearer and the bread baker in three days. One would be restored and the other one would be destroyed, that is to say, hung. The cupbearer would then go free, and as the cupbearer would go free, he would enter back into the presence of Pharaoh. There's a simple statement given by Joseph that simply says, do not forget me as you go before Pharaoh. And the, cut, and the bread baker would have his head removed, according to the text, or hung, more literally. Now, that is the pinnacle, if I can use that word, of his descent. He is at the lowest point possible. He is in prison. He has been faithful. He has interpreted the dreams the way that God interpreted the dreams and told him to give to the bread baker and the cup bearer, and he is forgotten for two years And then this occurs. Genesis 41, 25 through 36. Joseph is called up based upon the remembrance of the cupbearer. He calls him up so as to say, so as to interpret a dream that had been uniquely troubling Pharaoh. In Genesis 41, 25 through 36, a lengthy passage, but I'd like to read it all to you. Says this, then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them, there will arise seven years of famine and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that this thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming to store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. The food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through famine. That is to say that through the unique humiliation of Joseph, He is at the appropriate place and he is essentially exalted then to a a particular place by his working that would lead to the rescue, to the salvation of a particular region throughout history. If it were not for his humiliation, then there would be no further narrative that we find. There is no entrance into the Exodus. There is no way for us to walk into the narrative of Israel for they would have all died out in the midst of this famine. It is through his unique humiliation and particularly through his work in interpreting dreams that God himself gave him the ability to do that he was able to rescue. That is to save not just the land of Egypt, but particularly the people of the nation of Israel, his brothers, as it were. Not only is he then exalted through his finished work, that is to say, through his working of interpreting dreams, he is then exalted to a place of rather unique authority. Genesis 41, 40 through 43 says this, this is Pharaoh speaking, you shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on 
on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot and they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. That the entire nation of Egypt through, again, Joseph's humiliation, work, and then subsequent exaltation, all of Egypt will bow the knee to him. And not only will all of Egypt bow the knee to him, all of his brothers will bow the knee to him as well. But the concluding point of this is Genesis 41, 57. In just this simple descent, ascent narrative. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. To summarize Joseph's narrative, Joseph, the beloved son of Israel, is sold into slavery for 30 pieces of silver. He's then placed in Potiphar's house where he is tested and tried and proves himself to be faithful. He is then falsely accused. And as he is falsely accused, he is then sent to be in prison, sent to be punished for crimes that he most certainly did not commit. He then, through his work, rescues the nation of Egypt and also the people of Israel amongst a great multitude of others. And then he is placed as the second greatest authority in all the world, second only to Pharaoh based upon throne and throne alone, that all of Egypt would then bow perfectly before him as he made his way through the streets. The connecting point of this is to say that this narrative sets up the concept of a suffering servant. Joseph, however, is not the fulfillment of the suffering servant. If the suffering servant was fulfilled by Joseph, there would be not a dot or tittle in the remainder of the Old Testament that promised a future suffering servant. And yet Isaiah screams to us that there will be one who comes that will be like Joseph, that will be like a suffering servant. And so for just a moment, I would like to lay out the basic ways that Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, is like Joseph. Like Joseph, the promised Messiah is the faithful, spirit-filled, beloved son of Israel, not just a beloved son of Israel, but the beloved promised offspring given to Abraham. This one coming to fruition is the spirit-filled perfect son of Israel. That will be the one who ushers in all the promises of God, that every single yes and amen will come through not Joseph, but the true suffering servant that will come in the New Testament through the line of Judah. Like Joseph, Jesus is the faithful witness being the living and final word of God, that every single word from his mouth was a testimony to the faithfulness and fidelity of God. If he spoke in a condemning way about the people of Israel when he calls them whitewashed tombs with dead men's bones inside, we take him to the bank. When he promises that the Gentiles will be included in his finished work, then we also rest quite comfortably knowing that it is not just a word being given, it is the final word of God through the living word of God, that is Christ. Like Joseph, Jesus was hated and despised by his own kin. John 1 opens up with this very concept. He came to his own, that is to say that he came to his own Israel and his own people did not receive him. They despised him and hated him. And if you carry the train forward clearly enough, you will notice that the reason that, that Joseph's brothers hated him was because they were jealous 
Why is it that the Pharisees had the Lord Jesus crucified? They saw his unique authority. Even Pharisees came back speaking of this promised Messiah who spoke as one with actual authority. It's very easy for the living word to speak authoritatively. And as he does, he speaks with absolute confidence and it causes the Israelites to grow jealous of the true Israelite that has just arrived. Like Joseph, Jesus was faithful and blameless in the land of his affliction. He was tested and tried in ways that Joseph could not fathom. Tested and tried literally by the enemy himself. He is placed in the wilderness, not in a beautiful, comfortable land where he had everything that he needed. In the desert, he was tested and tried. He was offered food, he was offered kingdoms, and at every single turn, he proved faithful to the living God. We see the Lord Jesus Christ say loudly, I have better bread, and it's to do the will of him who sent me. He is tested and tried, he is found faultless. Even Pilate himself says, I cannot not find fault. He is perfect altogether, blameless as it were. And yet like Joseph, he was falsely accused. Mark 14, 56, the great crowd comes and they begin to make up their very narratives. And for many bore witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. They come bringing all types of false charges against the promised Messiah. Not one could stick. Do you know why Jesus was crucified? because he said that he was the king of the Jews, because he proclaimed something that was true and faithful. He said that he is the son of the living God. This is when they began to pursue to crucify him. He was not crucified for crimes. He was crucified for truth. Further, like Joseph, Jesus was faithful in his suffering, a far greater suffering and a far greater obedience. Philippians 2.8 says this, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And I would add, even in our picturesque form of this, we are not speaking of a man simply being nailed to a tree. We are speaking of the man Christ Jesus being nailed to a tree and dying underneath an eternal amount of God's wrath in three hours. The suffering that we speak of here cannot be simply pictured by just nails being driven into a hand. It is pictured by hell itself, the very wrath of God poured out on this promised suffering servant. Like Joseph, Jesus' faithful suffering led to the salvation of a great multitude. That is to say, a multitude without number, but by the grace of God, a multitude known from before the world began. 1 Peter 2, 22 through 24 tells us of the work of the Savior, the work of the suffering servant. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed his work was not providing bread his work was offering up himself that you might be brought into the family of God that your sins might be forgiven in full that you might be clothed in his perfect righteousness and the suffering frankly was in accordance with such a wonderful gift it is a costly grace that was provided what a wonderful gift that Christ has provided and the redemption that he has provided for a multitude without number that will finally gather around the throne on the last day. Like Joseph, Jesus at the completion of his saving work is exalted. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, not just in Egypt, not just in Israel, 
every single knee, past, present, future, hell, heaven, earth, everyone will hit the ground and confess Jesus Christ is Lord. It was a particular people in a particular time that bowed the knee to Joseph in regard to Christ, every single knee. Finally, like Joseph, salvation can only be had through our coming to this suffering servant. John 6, 35, Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Hear me, if you are here this day and you have not trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, you don't have anywhere else to go. There is nowhere else to go. And perhaps it is that you have spent your life exalting secondary means of salvation. There is no other gospel. There is no other means of redemption. You want living bread. You want living water. You want life eternal. You want forgiveness of sins. You want freedom from guilt. You want peace and peace that lasts forever. Joy that expands throughout eternity. Your only option is to bow the knee to Jesus here and now. You look to him and in him you will have salvation. Not temporary salvation. Not just a full belly, but an eternal life. And so he offers us life, but it's only through our entrance into the man Christ Jesus himself. And the clincher for me that this is not just taking liberty with the text is the fact that Israel, that is to say Jacob himself, takes the full narrative of Joseph and does not place it in Joseph's blessing. Listen to the blessing of Abraham, uh, the blessing of Jacob. Starting in verse Genesis 37, 6 through 7. I want to carry this, for, this thread forward for just a moment. He said to them, this is Genesis 37, 6 through 7. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. This is Joseph's dream. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Genesis 37, 9 through 10. Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I, your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? The sons of Israel then do this very act. In Genesis 42, 6, it says this. Now Joseph being governor of the land, he was the one who sold to all the people of the land and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him. Genesis 43, 26, when Joseph came home, they brought into the, to, into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. I think it's safe to say that if I'm Israel, that is to say that if I'm Jacob and I'm seeing all this unfold, I would think to myself, ah, the promise that Joseph gave has come to fruition. But Israel uniquely does not see it that way. Genesis 49, 8. And I want you to notice this is in the portion of the blessings. That is to say that he's finishing out his life and he's blessing all of his children. And if there was a particular tribe that you would give this particular blessing, you would assume, I think rightly, you would assume that it would belong to the people of Joseph, that is Ephraim and Manasseh. But interestingly enough, Genesis 49.8 is not ascribed to Joseph or his children, but it is ascribed to Judah. Genesis 49.8, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. This concept, this theme that runs throughout the narrative of Joseph is not placed back at the feet of Joseph in conclusion. 
It's placed at the feet of the promised son that will come through Judah. Now, that may seem like an oddity or an interruption in the text, but as a matter of fact, if you're reading the narrative of Joseph straight through, you will notice that the Holy Spirit has ultimately inspired an interruption in the narrative of Joseph, one that is rather peculiar, especially if you've forgotten the primary theme of the book of Genesis. The primary theme in the book of Genesis is not just beginnings, it's the promised seed. And the interruption that we find is not just to say, hey, take a brief look at something that's happening outside the narrative of Joseph. It's telling us the matrix, that is to say, the centerpiece of the narrative of Joseph. The promised seed is being preserved. If you look at Genesis 38, you will notice it is the narrative of Judah and Tamar. And in the midst of all of this, you have a brief pause and the Holy Spirit inspires a means by which we can briefly examine the promise that was given in Genesis 3.15, the promises that was re-given in 12.15 and 17. And he says, do not in the light of me showing you in shadowy form the promised offspring miss the actual line of that offspring. Because Joseph's labor providentially is not just showing us what what the Messiah will be like. It is his work that is continuing to preserve the very line from which the promised Messiah will come. Genesis shouts to us the providence of God and uniquely and often throughout the pages of scripture, God is communicating not one thing to us, but two things to us. In the narrative of Joseph, he is, dis he is displaying the fact that he will preserve the promised offspring and he is also simultaneously showing us what the promised offspring will be like. And so what do we have in the narrative of Joseph? We have one who is a suffering servant that points us ahead to the future, to the better, to the grander, to the fulfillment of that suffering servant, namely Jesus Christ. And simultaneously we have the God in infinite providence, as it says in Genesis 50, 50 19 through 20, do not fear for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That is to say, saints, not just in Joseph's day, but many, a multitude without number are kept alive through the descent and the ascent of Joseph, not because Joseph saved a multitude, but because Judah lived and because Judah lived, the promised offspring would truly come. And it ushers us into the Exodus. And here's how it ushers us into the Exodus. And then I'll close. Notice what it says again in Genesis 50, 22 to the end of the chapter. So Joseph remained in Egypt. He and his father's house, Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the, third, to the third generation. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, listen to the proclamation of Joseph here. I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of the land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. What does that tell us Joseph believes about the land where he's standing? Because Genesis 15 has already told us everything that will come to fruition. It tells us loudly that the Israelites will sojourn in a land not their own, that they will be slaves, that they will be oppressed for 400 years, and then they will be delivered. Joseph knows that he's standing on the very land that will enslave his brothers. And he is not first and foremost looking to the slavery. He is first and foremost meditating on the deliverance of God. And he knows full well that slavery will come. He knows that oppression will come. But as certain as he is about that, he knows not only will the deliverer come and bring them out of Egypt, but he is looking forward to the better deliverer that will deliver them from sin and death itself. 
Let's pray together.